0: Hey everybody, Alexa here, and welcome to Murder in the Mountains. We are back after a short-ish break. Apparently it is hard to be a full-time designer, full-time mom, full-time podcaster, but we are back this week with a brand new case, and my lovely husband, Ryan, is our co-host this week. Howdy. Howdy, he says. Okay. So, (laughs) Okay. So this week's case takes place in various cities in California. Stephen Gregory Stainer was born on April 18th, 1965 in Merced, California. He was the third of five kids for Delbert and Kay Stainer, and he had three sisters and an older brother. On December 4th, 1972, seven-year-old Stephen was walking home from school when he was approached by a man named Irvin Murphy, who was handing out religious pamphlets on the street, asking for donations for charity. The man asked Stephen if he thought his mom would be willing to donate to the charity, and he's like, yeah, she'll probably have some stuff at the house that we can donate. Who doesn't have a bag of Goodwill just sitting in their closet? That's not been taken. We do. He was like, great, I'll drive you home and talk to your mom to get the stuff. Stephen then followed the man to his car where he saw another man was waiting in the car as well. This guy was a registered sex offender named Kenneth Parnell. He was a former motel clerk who had already been convicted of molesting an eight-year-old boy while impersonating a police officer, for which he only served three years In prison, which is nuts. Parnell had convinced Irvin, who was mentally handicapped, that he was a religious leader who God had called to spiritually, spiritually? God. God. Did I say that weird?
1: (laughs) To me. (laughs) God, spiritually. You're You're getting in it. Great job, babe.
0: Okay. So, basically, he told Irvin that he wanted a little boy... To like lead to Jesus essentially, so is that I mean, like a? <laughs> well, it this is. is
1: the pedophile, right?
0: Yes. So hmm. what Ryan did was air quotes, yes, but Irv, like Irvin didn't know that it was air quotes because he was mentally, yeah. So he didn't know that he was a child molester. He didn't know why he really wanted a little boy. Okay, so when he got to the car, got in, the, he got in the car with Kenneth. And they started driving to where Stephen assumed was his house. And they passed his street, and he's like, hey, guys, that was my road. And he's like, oh, well, we're just going to call your parents, like, on a pay phone and see if you can stay the night with us.
1: And this kid's seven?
0: Yeah. So Stephen was like, we could literally just ask my parents, like, when we go to my house to, like, get the donations. And they're like, no, 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 no. Like, it's fine. We'll just call them. And he's like, okay. So he does get out of the car, uses a pay phone to quote unquote call his parents. When he gets back in the car, he said that uh, his parents told him that they didn't want him anymore and was going to take him back to his house. But the reality was that Delbert and Kay had already reported to the police that Stephen hadn't made it home from school. Obviously, Stephen didn't know that. He's only seven years old. So Kenneth took Stephen to his cabin in Kathy's Valley, which was only a few miles away from his home in Merced. Kenneth started molesting Stephen the first night at the cabin and began raping him 13 days later. Stephen was told that the reason his parents sent one him back was because they couldn't afford to raise five kids, so they granted Kenneth legal custody. So just think about this. Stephen's a seven-year-old boy, very young, very impressionable, and this adult, who's supposedly a religious man, you know, is telling you that your parents don't want you anymore and that this is your new home. He voluntarily got into the man's car, so there was no, like, forcible kidnapping or anything. So, Stephen may not have even realized that he was abducted. You know what I mean? hmm This man pretended to speak to his parents and was relaying information that Stephen had no reason not to believe because it was an adult. So, Kenneth literally started brainwashing Stephen right off the bat. And you might think that once you abduct a child... And you're only a few miles away that you're going to keep him hidden. But you would be wrong. He told Stephen his new name was Dennis Gregory Parnell. And only a few weeks after his abduction, he enrolled him in a new school using his real middle name and real date of birth. But back then... I don't know if you needed the same kind of documentation to enroll a kid in school as you do now, but it's very ballsy either way. I mean, he like dyed his hair and stuff to hide his appearance. But I mean, uh, how much does that really hide? You know what I mean?
1: Dyeing a seven-year-old's hair is a little weird. I feel like it would look obvious.
0: So flyers had been distributed at all the schools in the district, but not at the one that Stephen was enrolled in. Of course, Kenneth and Stephen moved around California over the next few years to avoid detection as Stephen got older. Kenneth allowed him to drink alcohol and come and go from the house as he pleased, so technically, he could have left or gotten help at any time, but again, he was told from age seven that his parents didn't want him, and he, like we said voluntary voluntarily got in the car. So he didn't see a need to flee from his abductor. Like, where am I going to go? To my parents that don't want me? And aside from the fact that he was being sexually abused, he didn't really know what he had to get help from, if that makes sense. Like, obviously, he knows that that's wrong. But Kenneth told Stephen one time and one time only not to tell anyone about the abuse that was going on. So Stephen didn't out of fear of what would happen if he did. So... He was told early on, once, tell anybody what's happening, trouble. He said, okay. And then he was just allowed to do whatever he wanted because he never tried to flee, whatever. Four years into his captivity, Kenneth gave Stephen a Manchester Terrier who he named Queenie. Stephen loved the dog and it was the, like a happy part of his otherwise not so great everyday life. If you're like, wow, maybe Kenneth is turning over a new leaf, giving Stephen a nice gift and companion. Once again, you'd be wrong. When Stephen was 11 years old, a woman named Barbara Matthias came into the picture and began living with Kenneth and Stephen, who she knew as Dennis. She was allowed to freely rape Dennis as she pleased, and she took full advantage. Like, you hear stuff like this all the time. How do these people find other people like this? This is wild. Like, it's hard enough when you're normal to find normal people who share your hobbies and your interests and your friends with, but then these criminals like find people who do stuff like that all the time. And it's just nuts.
1: Like who's down to molest some minors.
0: Yeah. Like how how does this come up in casual conversation? It's like, I I get
1: some cracker barrel and uh, touch little boys.
0: Exactly. And as far as she knows, this is son, you know what I mean? So you're dating a man who you know and are okay with him raping his own son, essentially. When Stephen turned 14, he became too old for Parnell's taste. So he decided it was time to find another younger boy. He enlisted Barbara in his search for a new boy, and she tried to lure a boy that went to the same boys club as Stephen into the car, but her attempt was unsuccessful. Kenneth then decided he would make Stephen help him kidnap another boy. Stephen made quote-unquote attempts Multiple times, but would always find a way to sabotage it without Kenneth knowing, like all oh, shucks, didn't work, didn't work again. So when that didn't work, Kenneth bribed one of Steven's friends named Sean Poorman with drugs in cash. To help him kidnap a little boy. So Sean allegedly tried to back out, but he was threatened into keeping his end of the deal. Sean saw five-year-old Timmy White playing in his yard on February 13th, 1980. He tried to coax Timmy into Kenneth's car, but he resisted and tried to run inside. Sean then grabbed Timmy and pushed him into a fence, grabbed him, and forced him into the car, literally kicking and screaming. I don't know how nobody saw it, because it was daytime in his yard yard. But things happen. So let's just note that it's been seven years since Stephen was kidnapped and he's just living his new life. So when Sean brought Timmy to Kenneth, he was paid in cash and weed in order not to speak of it again. And why would he? Because he just kidnapped a little boy. You know, he's going to get in trouble just as much as Kenneth is. Mm. So just like he did with Stephen, Kenneth immediately started brainwashing the little boy and changed Timmy's name to Tommy. So original. He also dyed his blonde hair brown so he wouldn't look like the missing posters. It was hearing Timmy being told the same things that he told Stephen to make Stephen realize just how bad things had been. He knew Timmy had a family that was missing him, so he was like, well, hey, maybe I do too. Two weeks after Timmy was kidnapped and brought to live with Kenneth and Stephen, Stephen knew he didn't want the little boy to go through what he went through. So Stephen decided that they were going to escape and he would get Timmy back to his family. He couldn't bear the thought of Timmy going through the same abuse as him. So he came up with a plan to get both of them out of there. On March 1st, 1980, Stephen and Timmy escaped while Kenneth was at work. Kenneth lived in a remote area, so they walked a quarter of a mile down a road until passing a truck driver who saw them and took them to Ukiah, where Timmy was from. He was able to direct the driver to a babysitter's house, but nobody was home. Unfortunately, he couldn't tell them where his parents lived. So, Stephen went to a phone booth and found the address of the Ukiah police station. At the station, Stephen told Timmy to walk inside and tell them who he was. Timmy walked to the door, but got scared and ran back to Stephen. Luckily, officers saw this and stopped the boys from leaving, and soon learned their identities. The officer looked at Stephen and asked what the little boy's name was. He said, Timmy White. In disbelief, since the little boy was literally all over the news, his blonde hair had been dyed. He asked one more time, and Stephen said again, Timmy White. When asked what his name was, Stephen, who had been known as Dennis Parnell for seven years, told the cop, I know my first name is Stephen. I think my last name is Stainer.
1: That's not... How old was... Timmy, from the time he was abducted to this, he was five
0: and it was only like a few days.
1: Okay. Yeah. I thought it was good. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm. So both families were contacted, and to say they were excited is obviously an understatement. Stephen had literally been gone for seven years. Obviously, you lose hope. You don't want to, but like deep down, you're probably like, he's dead. He's not coming back home. He was abducted as a little boy and came back a teenager. Both Timmy and Stephen testified against Kenneth Parnell in his 1981 trial, where he was found guilty for kidnapping both Stephen and Timmy. Unfortunately, the statute of limitations had run out for the sexual abuse against Stephen, so he couldn't be charged with that. The fact that there's even a statute what? of limitations on... Or on a minor. On a minor, yeah.
1: Who was abducted. How was he supposed to Correct. plead any... like? The statute of limitations should be from the time you're like an adult or had a chance to make a case. I feel or like there
0: shouldn't even be one. I feel like that's a stupid thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's kind of dumb.
0: So what's even more ridiculous is that Kenneth Parnell was only sentenced to 20 months in prison for kidnapping Stephen, a boy he kept captive for seven years. But he was sentenced to seven years for the kidnapping of Timmy, but he was released on good behavior after only serving five years. So he spent less time in prison than Stephen did under his control. What? (laughs) Yeah. So as for Stephen, his transition back to his old life was not a smooth one. He was teased and bullied relentlessly for the sexual abuse he suffered during his time with Parnell, like by other children.
1: Kids are horrible.
0: Literally the worst.
1: How did they know that?
0: Because it was in the news. Mm. It was in the news. There was a trial, you know, everything. The bullying was so bad that he just ended up dropping out of school. And if you remember earlier, Kenneth let Stephen drink alcohol and pretty much do whatever he wanted. And as you would imagine, his real parents... Would not Not allow that. So after a few years, things got so bad at home that his father ended up kicking him out of the house. Literally, like, can you imagine kicking your child who was ripped from your life for seven years out of your home? But Delbert was not really helping the situation because, obviously, Stephen had gone through serious trauma, the kidnapping, the sexual abuse, being brainwashed into thinking your parents didn't want you, then the shock of coming back to that family and having, you know, all these rules that you aren't used to. So any one of those things would be a lot to deal with. But Stephen had the whole combination of things. And despite everything he'd been through, Stephen's father refused to let him seek counseling. He was like, you're not going to therapy. You don't need it. You're a man. You know, whatever.
1: Toxic masculinity, huh? Exactly. That's nuts, though.
0: So, yeah, literally prohibiting your son from getting the support he needs to and move on and then kicking him out of the house because he doesn't know how to cope with it.
1: How old was he roughly this time? Um, You said a few years he'd been back and he was 14 when he moved in. Yeah, so 17 17 probably. yeah.
0: So by the time Stephen was in his early 20s, he had a wife and two kids and was generally, like, doing better. Then one night when Stephen was on his way home from work on his motorcycle, a car hit him in a hit-and-run. Stephen wasn't wearing a helmet, and he died of his injuries at the age of 24. The man who hit and killed Stephen was sentenced to three months in jail and a $100 fine. So two people who victimized (laughs) Stephen just getting a slap on the wrist.
1: Three months?
0: For a hit and run, where you murdered somebody. I was about to say you
1: killed someone, so that's what involuntary manslaughter i guess or murder or something i feel adamantial. like it'd be
0: involuntary manslaughter but then you leave the scene so i feel like that's another
1: yeah layer you know, on top you of would it.
0: feel like you wouldn't be so lenient
1: yeah. when
0: you left and you didn't try to get help jeez So thanks to Stephen's rescue, the return home went a lot better for Timmy. He didn't have the years of trauma to recover from, so things went back to normal relatively quickly for Timmy, who ended up being a pallbearer at Stephen's funeral. Mm -hmm. Timmy became a sheriff's deputy with a wife and two kids just like Stephen. Unfortunately, also like Stephen, Timmy White died way too young. He was 35 years old when he suddenly died from a pulmonary embolism. So it's incredibly unfair that these two boys, whose lives were changed forever by Kenneth Parnell, were outlived by their abductor. Like I said, Kenneth was released after only five years for both kidnappings. So that would have been in like 1986, 1987. In 2003, when Parnell was 71 years old, he was dealing with some health problems of his own. He had diabetes, emphysema, and was recovering from a stroke, so he had a caretaker. This numbnuts attempted to bribe his caregiver to buy buy him a four-year-old boy off the internet. Obviously, she said no. Good for her. Right? Thank you. A good person in the story. She went to the police, and he ended up spending the rest of his life in prison.
1: Oh, wait. So they put him in prison for soliciting a four-year-old. Yep. But abducting and molesting a seven-year-old wasn't good enough.
0: Correct. This was also 2003. So laws have changed. And, and don't forget, he only went to prison for three years for molesting an eight-year-old before that. So this guy literally has a record. He had a record when he went to trial for Timmy and Steven.
1: Yeah. Prior to them. Pri- yeah.
0: yeah. That's what I'm saying. It's not like
1: the special guy that helped get the boy. Did he ever stay in the picture that we know of?
0: No, he left the cabin like a day or two later and claims he never witnessed any form of sexual abuse. Steven and Kenneth shared a bed. It's like a one bedroom cabin. They shared a bed and Nervin slept on the couch. So he never saw what happened, you know, behind closed doors. So that was a lot, but we're not done.
1: Oh, there's more. Oh,
0: there's more.
1: But wait, there's more. Yes. This is a sham wild commercial. It is.
0: So on February 15th 1999. So we're rewinding a little bit here because you we just went to 2003 with Kenneth Parnell. Now we're 1999. So on February 15th, 1999, 42-year-old Carol Sund, her 15-year-old daughter Julie and Julie's 16-year-old friend Silvina Peloso, who was an exchange student from Argentina, went in this thing while staying at Cedar Lodge near Yosemite National Park. The night before, a man knocked on their motel door and said that he was a maintenance worker for the motel and he had to fix a leak. Carol let him in and he wasted no time. He immediately strangled Carol and 16-year-old Savina and then loaded their bodies into the trunk of his car. He then took 15-year-old Julie with him on a 30-mile drive in search of a place to dump her mother and her friend's bodies. It's traumatic enough, knowing that their bodies were literally in the car with you, but to physically go with their killer to find a place to dispose of them is insane. The killer eventually pulled over and murdered Julie by slitting her throat. He left her body by a creek and then walked back to the car and drove 40 more miles before he stopped and set it on fire with Carol and Savina still inside. Their bodies were discovered a month later on March 19th, and they were so badly burned that it took dental records to identify them. Julie's body, however, was not discovered at that time. Later that month, the killer sent a letter to the FBI with a roughly drawn map showing them where they could find Julie's body. In that same note, he said, We had fun with this one, something the FBI agents knew would not be good for the victim. Agents brought cadaver dogs to the area drawn in the map, and they found Julie's body. Police immediately suspected a group of parolees in the area of the murders, so they began their investigation at the motel where the ladies were staying. Police spoke to employees and other guests about if they saw anything, and one employee named Carrie opened up motel rooms for them and helped them in their search efforts. The employees at the motel were close-knit and had no idea how something like this could have happened on their watch in their motel. Obviously, it terrified them. A few months after the bodies of the first three victims were found, police feared they had a serial killer loose in Yosemite when 26-year-old Joey Armstrong was found murdered that July. Joey was a naturalist who had plans to go on a trip with friends on July 21st. Her friends went to her cabin and found it disheveled like a struggle had gone down. They immediately called the police since she didn't meet them. They hadn't heard from her and the cabin was a disaster. Police came and began a search for Joey, which led them to a stream near her cabin. It was that day that they found her decapitated body and her head a few feet away in the stream. The next day, police received a tip of a car that was last seen near Joey's cabin the day of her murder. It was a light blue car that was known to locals as belonging to an employee of the motel where the first three victims stayed. And I feel like you're like, what does this have to do with anything? Yes. <laughs> He <laughs> just kind of looking at me like taking it all in.
1: I wanted to ask the question, but I was like, you know, I'm going to be a patient co host. Yeah. Wait for you to tie it together. And you're about to, you're I, about to kill it. I'm about to babe. drop it.
0: Okay. So the car that was seen outside Joey's cabin belonged to Carrie Stainer, the older brother of Stephen.
1: Boom, boom, boom.
0: Police arrested Carrie for possession of marijuana because that's all they could get him for at the time. They didn't have any evidence um, for it, like anything else yet.
1: And like Stephen, the boy,
0: Stephen, the boy's older, older brother. brother, Carrie. OK, his car was last seen outside a murder victim's house. OK. OK. And he worked at the motel where the other three victims were staying. Unfortunately, due to a clerical error, he wasn't held in custody overnight. Upon his release, he went back to the motel and tried to sell his belongings. He obviously knew he was on the police's radar. So where would you go if you were on the run? Where would you go, babe?
1: Not California.
0: Not California. <laughs> well, they're already in California. Um, if your answer would have been a nudist colony, then you and Carrie would have been on the same page. I
1: mean, after your last few days, possibly, I guess, huh? <laughs>
0: So he went to Laguna del Sol and began living in a tent. The police issued a bolo for Carrie in his car, and luckily a woman at the nudist colony bar saw it and called the FBI when she saw him in there. After being taken into custody, police began questioning him while they shared a pizza. You know, sharing a slice. Carrie reportedly became really sentimental, saying that this is the last pizza that he was ever going to have. He knew that he was going to prison for the rest of his life. So he told the police that he was ready to talk, but he wanted something from them in return. You might think, take the death penalty off the table. Uh, Give me a cigarette, something normal criminals ask for. He decided he was going to ask the police in exchange for a confession for child pornography. What? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He said, and I quote, it's sick, disgusting, perverted I know that, but I can't go to prison for the rest of my life and be happy without having seen it. Wow. Yeah.
1: Kind of makes me wonder if Stephen was, had issues at home and this kid had issues at home prior to him being abducted.
0: Okay. So there were reports that their father molested his sisters and there was also reports that Carrie molested his sisters. And that Carrie was eventually molested by his uncle, who he stayed with for a little bit. It was literally said, like, that sexual abuse was like a disease in that family, that it just spread. It was just a thing. So funny that you bring that up. Yeah. Yeah. So police brushed it off like, well, I'll have to ask my higher ups. You know, I don't have the uh, authority to grant you child pornography, but... He literally just assumed that they had like all this stockpiled, like at the police station. Like, oh, yeah, let me get my
1: vanilla folder and get out the child pornography for you. You say
0: vanilla folder? Manila, vanilla, (laughs) milli, vanilla. Yeah. Okay. So they had begun to build a rapport with him and didn't want him to stop talking and be like, no, you freaking sicko, we're not giving child pornography. So they were like, yeah, 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 we'll just, we'll see what we can do. Eventually, when he knew that it wasn't going to happen, he decided that he was going to confess anyway. So he confessed to the murders of Carol, Sylvina, Julie, and Joey. And at first they just got him on Joey. So when he confessed to the other three, they were like, okay, they had no idea. So Carrie Stainer always resented how much attention Stephen received and wanted to do whatever it took to get his own attention. Like when he came home, there were TV shows, there were books, there were interviews, there were, you know, a whole thing. Carry claimed that he had thoughts of killing women ever since he was seven years old, which was before Stephen was even kidnapped. So you can't hmm. even blame it on that. He seemed proud of the fact that he managed to keep his urges under control for 30 years, and he openly said that he would have kept killing If he hadn't been stopped, Carrie Stanner was sentenced to death in 2002 and is still currently serving his sentence in San Quentin prison. So your son is kidnapped when he was seven miraculously comes home, then is killed in a hit and run. Then your other son becomes a serial killer. What a doozy.
1: That's crazy. Whack, babe.
0: That is whack. Did you see that twist coming?
1: I did not see that coming. Good. And it's a solid case.
0: It is a soft case. Yes. Yeah. Great job. When I asked Ryan to be our co-host, he was like, oh, you always give me cases that are unsolved, Da-da-da-da, which is what every co-host says. So obviously somebody's wrong.
1: <laughs> Some of them are solved.
0: Some of them are solved. I said, no, no, no. This one is very solved. So yeah, multiple crimes, all solved in a crazy, tragic, twisty case. Any final thoughts or anything?
1: No, I okay. shouldn't. No. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. Well, uh, we are happy to be back. We. We are happy to be back. And if you guys would like to support the show, you can leave a five star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Follow us on Instagram at Murder in the Mountains and come back next week for a new episode. See ya.
1: Bye.